Hello and welcome to the Hammond High podcast. In this episode, Bridget Galton speaks to former Labour leader and current Shadow Business Secretary Ed Miliband. A Camden stalwart, Ed has a book out titled Go Big, How to Fix Our World. He's also a podcast veteran, recording the long-running Reasons to be Cheerful with Jeff Lloyd. In this interview, he discusses the big issues of the world today, as well as his North London upbringing and the challenges of juggling politics and family life. Hi, Ed. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk about your, your book. Um, the, the one thing I was going to say, actually, that was that um, I was struck by when I was looking through your uh, Wikipedia entry. God knows how much of that is accurate or not. But it says you were born right at the end of 1969, like literally at the end of 1969, as was I. Christmas um, Eve. Christmas Eve. When were you? Christmas Eve. Well, I'm the 25th of October, so I, you do have... You, you're more tail end than me. But, I mean, you um, are I, much more. You you much more the swing sixties than me. Then it's funny, isn't it? When you um when you're having to sort of say what your birthday is, and you scroll all the way down through the decades, you have to go into the sixties, don't you? It sort of makes you go, oh, God, I'm old. But I was uh, I was thinking more of the context of having that very early kind of beautifully unfettered seventies childhood, that then was very aware of coming of age at Thatcherism. And I was just really wanting to know, but given that you get, Thatcher gets an awful lot of name checks in your book, how do you feel that that end of 1969 birth sort of has shaped you really? What an interesting question. Um, well, I think growing up in the eighties, so my sort of first political consciousness is really the, 80s. I, see, I, I think I remember my first political memory is Harold Wilson resigning because play school was cancelled and I was extremely upset. Um, uh, Mine was my, my dad standing for, he stood for parliament and I can't, can't remember which one and I was one of the babies that was kissed by Jeremy Thorpe. <laughs> wow. How extraordinary. What an amazing, uh, what an amazing claim to fame. Uh, you don't remember being kissed by Jeremy Thorpe? No, but there is a picture of it, so... How fantastic. Um, um, so, yeah, no, I remember be, my, my grandmother telling me that I, I was very annoyed that play school had been cancelled. So, yeah, I think growing up under Thatcherism was really very formative because I think it did... You know, the miners' strike, unemployment, uh, just the general sense of what was being, what was happening. I think growing up in in, in London, in a London school, in a London comprehensive, have a stop. You know, it it it, it, it did definitely shape me, um, without question. And also, obviously, the parents I grew up with, my parents, um, you know, were sort of pretty instrumental to the shaping of me too um as with everybody um you know and the very political household in which i in which i grew up um so yeah i think it's i think it was pretty i think it was pretty formative yeah and as you say um you, you had two parents who had sort of had to outrun fascism uh and were very politi- political 
your house must have been full of debate, uh, as is as is the book actually. Did you find that stimulating, or did you ever sort of want to just go off and watch baseball? <laughs> I used to sneak off and watch Dallas. Um, yeah, Dallas Neighbors. Uh, uh, Dallas was my Dallas was my thing. Probably a bit of Neighbors as well. Um, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I think there's two choices you've got in these circumstances or in any circumstances, which is to rebel or to to kind of get with the program. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I mean, look, my parents didn't shove it down our throats, but but it was more when you had it, it it, it, it gave me a sort of excitement actually about politics. I think. You know, meet, meeting. I mean, the people I the the the, the 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 most vivid memory of all, the most moving memory of all, is meeting Ruth First, who was a South African activist who was later killed by the South, yeah. soon after killed by the South African government and Joe Slovo. And you know, you sort of feel it made me feel that politics was about big things. It, you know, it really mattered. Yeah, it really, really mattered. Um, and it's funny the way these things happen because presumably it's possible that I could have just thought oh this is all nonsense and I want to get as far away from this as possible and I suppose it is a bit of a tribute to my parents I think part of it was that my parents were quite good our parents were quite good at encouraging us to have opinions and even when we were quite young um, and, and like I said this in the book and sort of not saying, well, they're there, you wouldn't understand, you're only 12. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, I think cultivating that sense that you can have an opinion, even if you're relatively young, was quite a way of inviting us in mm. to the conversation rather than sort of pushing us, pushing us away from the conversation. Um, I suppose your, your dad had taught politics at university, so he was used to sort of bringing students in and that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that that's a really good point actually um yeah and he wouldn't um uh you know they would he's he was a very big and dominant figure in many ways but but in relation to us he operated with quite a degree of humility and didn't sort of say wouldn't say you know how can you know, you're you're wrong because you're young and you wouldn't understand. They were very yeah. they they were very in that sense. They were very egalitarian in the way that they approached it. So when people would come around to dinner and sort of say, you know, and I I'd pipe up or David would pipe up. Um, you know, if there was any sense that this dinner guest was sort of patronising us, then my dad would step in to defend us. It was very, in a way, very impressive actually. Yeah. Um, uh, as I as I think, as I think back on it, and then the sort of weird, the, the 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 unknowable thing I think is the extent to which the sort of Holocaust and their refugee experience wasn't really talked about, but the extent to which it was in the background. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's obviously it was it was obviously massive for them, and and it's sort of a slightly odd because they didn't talk about it but I can't help feeling that it's sort of it, it, I kind of had a sense of it so I went to 
Israel. My grandmother was living in Israel, and I went to Israel in the, I think it must have been the late 70s, and I saw a picture of her late husband, so my grandfather, who'd been killed in, um, killed by the Nazis, essentially, in a, in a labor camp, concentration camp, but as we, mm. now, as we later discovered, uh, and asking who he was, and there was a sort of general sense of awkwardness about it. Um, I think they did explain to me. So I can't help feeling that those things, those those family experiences do, but they must be quite defining in a way. Yeah. And also, again, about how politics can affect people's lives, I mean, in a really big way. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and, you know, when I think about the, the dislocation and quite apart from the d- death and destruction but the dislocation that it caused to my parents yeah. uh, I think it made them almost quasi-religious in their sense of belief in religious in a sort of secular way if that's not yeah. too paradoxical in a in a in, in feeling like you have a responsibility to make the world a better place which if I'm completely frank with you can be a burden actually yeah yes because you I can't mean, just go off and yeah. indulge your individualism well I mean maybe if I'd sort of had the taken the rebellious streak I would have you know subjected it all in and went off and sort of lived a hedonistic life somewhere uh but but you know there was quite a sense of responsibility to the world, I think. Yeah. So, so that you know, I don't want to say that was a bad thing, but I think it was a. It, it definitely, it definitely felt like a sense of responsibility. Yeah. Now, I also have to ask you about um, <laughs> the primary school. Uh, Boris Johnson has uh, made a bit of a deal about the fact that yes. he went to the same primary school. I think he was there for about, you know. Five minutes. Before heading off to Eton. Um, I just kind of wanted to know, presumably, uh, what was kind of Primrose Hill like? Because we all think of it as a bit of a celebrity enclave now, but I'm not. I mean, it really, it really wasn't. When my, I mean, this is going to sound so peculiar, but when my um, father and mother bought their house, which was um, obviously before I was born, what well, was before I was born in the 60s, my grandmother, so my mother's mother, was quite distressed about the area that they were moving into, which is going to sound ridiculous now. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, so, look, it was quite a mixed area. I mean, the Primrose Hill School, Primrose Hill Primary School, was literally just around the corner from our house. We lived in Edith Street. And it was literally just sort of a stone's throw from our house. Yeah. I have very fond. I have very fond. I actually went to primary school in Leeds for the, the first until the, um, I suppose what would be now called year two. And yeah. uh, um, uh, but I have very fond memories of Primrose Hill uh, uh, Primary School and, and lovely sort of teachers. And uh, yeah, it was just a sort of. Um, it felt like a very safe, uh, friendly, really sort of friendly place. Yeah. And, and I was interested as well, because obviously you mentioned Haverstock as well. And uh, 
you know, another thing we have in common, we, I went for the comprehensive that was pretty much the nearest one. And it was interesting at that time because people really, it wasn't, there was no, people from all walks of life, you know, literally just went to the school. It wasn't, you weren't sort of fiving yourself off to this, this school and that school. And so you've got a really good mix of kids in those kind of 80s comps. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember Hammerstall used to boast about having 63 nationalities or, you know, some incredible number of uh, uh, kids represented. Um, and uh, and it was, a, you know, felt like a very much, it goes back to what you said about the 80s. It was, I remember all the teachers were incredibly left-wing. I mean, it was sort of yes. slightly, it slightly will fulfil some right-wing stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, but it was full of lefty teachers um and uh and you know it it my my kids go to well my older one goes to Ackland Burley uh and uh the the other one's to the primary school and you know I, I see through his eyes uh and a bit like through my eyes you know there is something really inspiring about the comprehensive ideal actually yeah. Um, and for me, uh, about the way a community school, um, uh, a school that um, I think it teaches you about life, actually, and the world and society yeah. in a way that, you know, school is about exams and maths and English. And of course, it's about all of those things, but it's about something else as well. And I think it sort of I think it is a good, it was a good preparation for life. It was, it had its rough elements, if I'm honest, Tavistock. Right. My sense okay. is, my sense is it, it, it sort of, in its later incarnations, it became a slightly, maybe less rough than it was. I remember it feeling quite uh, yeah. <laughs> anxious, anxious making at times. Um, uh, was that because you were wanting to get your head down and, you know, do your, you did four A-levels, which is quite impressive um is that because you know there was an element that wanted to you know we think about the, the kids that want to study and the ones that want to disrupt them <laughs> well I don't know yeah I don't know about that it just had it just felt like sometimes it could be a bit rough yeah um but at the but 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 the teach and the teaching though was was my my memory of the teaching is very high quality yeah yeah uh, um actually the head teacher was a woman called Valerie Jenkins, who was a very tough English teacher. She actually taught her my class English. My dark class was quite a disruptive class, actually. Mm. And she was brought in to teach us English, I remember, uh, at yeah. one point in the third year or something. But yeah, I mean, look, the, re I, I, the reason I was able to do four A-levels and, and do okay was I got taught incredibly well. Like, I remember, I, I mean, I, I really like maths, and I got taught maths incredibly well by a whole range of teachers there. Yeah. And science. Uh, and I'm actually still in touch vaguely with the uh, with Kate Myers, who taught me English. Brilliant. Um, uh, who's, who's a lovely person. So I've got, I, I've got fond memories of it, but it had its rough moments, in truth. Yeah. But, and, but also, I suppose if you're going to go on and represent people, like as an MP or as a, you know, to have... I, I think this whole argument about elites is quite strong, you know, in a sense that you were... You did go to Oxford from there, but um, up to that point, you'd had the same 
education as anybody else you've not had a and I think that's quite important actually I well, like, for me that was important I mean for me that was definitely um a, a benefit um I, I I don't say it didn't have its challenges but it did um it definitely had its challenges I think what I see from my um from my son uh, and Anklamoli is an outstandingly good school is that sort of safety bullying all that is taken much more seriously today than it was then yeah yeah um I'm not saying that that I was constantly bullied or anything like that but 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 I think it felt right it it felt yeah it had felt edgy 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 is a good way (laughs) Edgy is a good way of putting it. But no, I think it is a good preparation. I definitely agree with you. Um, yeah. And I think it, it enables you to get on with people, you know, from all walks of life. So ju- just on to the, the podcast then. It, it's um, It's been going for, is it four years now? Um, yeah, yeah. 200, ep- 200 episodes, actually. We just got hit 200 episodes. And it's it seems like such a brilliant idea in terms of at a time when people were very um, cynical about the possibilities of um, I suppose politics and having a, a, a way of sort of affecting or fixing things and and the need for optimism which has only got greater in the last yeah point. yeah 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 definitely um, you know what do you put the success of it down to really. I think that, well, my colleague Jeff, who is my co-presenter, Jeff Lloyd, I mean, he, look, he saw the, the the desire there was to cover ideas in a accessible, big, big ideas in an accessible, non-partisan way. This were podcast, podcast was sort of taking off big style. And, and so, and, you know, I think there is a, people want to know the world can be better and politics can feel very off-putting. I mean, politics can feel very off-putting to the people in politics, never mind the people outside politics. Uh, but, you know, it can just, the, the, the day-to-day Yaboo stuff can feel very, very off-putting. And I think, you know, a, a, a sort of embrace of ideas and an embrace in an accessible way uh, and it's been interesting for me, actually, if you think about the book, because, you know, my dad wrote very, it wasn't high theory, mm. but it was very serious and very, I mean, he wrote in quite an accessible way, and that's what lots of people said. Um, uh, it wasn't abstruse, sort of in, incomprehensible Marxism, you know what I mean? That's not the yeah. way he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's been quite interesting. It was. It's been quite an interesting sort of journey for me in, in the podcast, but the book particularly, which is to think. Okay, you're not writing a book of high theory. You're writing a book that's trying to combine, a bit like the podcast, trying to combine big ideas with accessibility. Yeah. You know, and that's and and sort of. I think there's something there in my upbringing about feeling like I think that the, you know my dad was very respectful of people who were in politics or engaged in politics. I think he thought was really the pinnacle of achievement that was academia, I think. Right. <laughs> but then, of course, as you say, it can be a bit rarefied. So you, you exactly. much, much better off to write a book that people, that, you know, exactly. reaches more people. 
he wouldn't have written a line that said, I was standing in my pants in Copenhagen, you know what I mean, which is in my book, you know what I mean? I'm not sure what he would have thought of that line. It's interesting because you, you make the point as well that the, both the podcast and, and hopefully the book is, um, there's an appetite, it's cross-party, you make it very clear this is not in any way a Labour manifesto. I mean, obviously you are now in the Shadow Cabinet yeah. again, but um, it, it's it's really trying to reach across all these. One of the things that sort of, Brexit, Trump and the last couple of general elections have taught us is, is that Britain is quite a, a fractured society and, and essentially you want to appeal across all sorts of people with, with the, the ideas in this book. Yeah, and I think I think there is sort of, I think there is a chance to do that. I, I mean Reeby was striking to me, and I suppose that's partly the way the book is written as it's written that the the podcast we'd get people who would email in uh contact us who said look i'm a conservative but i actually quite like some of your ideas um or i'm a conservative and i would never have dreamed of voting for you um but i quite like some of what's on the what's on the podcast and i think i think we're in this really interesting moment which is um and it goes back to your very important question at the beginning, which is there was an era, which is, I'd say, 1979 to 2008, which is one settlement, a sort of Thatcherite settlement adapted by Tony Blair. And it's like we're in the, it's like the kind of, um, the official on the touchline has put up a thing that's a, a sort of, ex, we're, in, we're in kind of injury time of that settlement. You know, it's like 13 years of injury time. It feels like, and it feels like, what, I think people across the political spectrum actually are looking for what does the new solution look like? If you think about it, it's very striking to me, looking at Boris Johnson versus David Cameron. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of Boris Johnson, it won't surprise you to hear, but there's, there's a diff, he, he makes a different argument against people like me than Cameron would have made. Cameron said, Look, Miliband's stuff is he's living in a Marxist universe. It's all nonsense. And their argument, Cameron Oswald's argument in the Remain campaign was everything's really good, vote for us. Johnson's yeah. argument is a different argument. Mm. Johnson's argument is I agree that the country is too unequal. I agree we need levelling up. Now, I personally don't think he'll deliver it, but leave that to one side. I think, and I think that reflects something. I think it reflects the fact that the old settlement is bust. Yeah. The economy doesn't work for lots of people. We've got the climate crisis. We've got deep and entrenched inequality. All of those things that we know, exposed by the pandemic, further exposed by the pandemic. And uh, and the question is, what does a new settlement look like? And that's, and that's kind of what the, uh, you know, in some sense, what the book's trying to contribute towards. Mm. And did, did, in a way, did, the, did writing it as well help you to, put into context where the, the five years that you came in when you were trying you know you were absolutely the forefront of it trying to come up with those new ideas or make an offer to the British people has it helped to contextualize that for you De- definitely um and, it, and, it, and in a way it tries to I mean this is not a book saying I was right everything I said you know I, I I sort of, I didn't want to do an instant reaction when I lost in 2015 saying, well, this is what I got wrong, this is what I got right, because I thought actually it's in the fullness of time that it will become clearer. 
Mm. And, uh, you know, my reflection is I could and should have been bolder, although I was trying to move the debate on. And Mm. part of the challenge of moving the debate on, and I say this in the later part of the book, is, you know, there's nothing more difficult. I think Machiavelli says there's nothing more difficult to undertake than a new order of things. And it is really difficult. And, you know, yeah. if you, what, what's really striking to me, and it goes back to what I just said earlier, is that a lot of the things that I said that were controversial at the time, that companies could be predatory, that we should intervene in markets, freezing energy prices, for example, that inequality was a massive problem. They were controversial, red Ed and all that. And now they're like, yeah, you can't find anyone who disagrees with them, really. Yeah, I mean, it is, so it's about timing, like comedy. Well, it's about timing, like comedy, but it's also about the way the debate moves. And, and you know, it takes time to move a debate. Uh, but, but, but it does, as you say, ref, you know, it, it tries to reflect on the book My Time as Leader, but but also where we are now. And I sort of think when you look at where we are now, with all the problems I've talked about, the climate crisis too, how can you think small change is a big, is, is the answer? You know, how, that small change is, is going to solve the problems we face. I just, you know, if there's one reason I'm still in politics, um, there's lots of reasons, but one reason, one big reason is the climate crisis, because you yeah. know, the, it stands alone in the sense that the decisions we make over the next few years will have implications for the next few hundred years. You know, yeah. if, if this is the decisive decade, and that's a cliche, but that means that, you know, once the CO2 goes into the atmosphere in this decade, it's very hard to then do anything about it. Now, it doesn't mean to say we're then, there's nothing that can be done, but it feels very, we're in a decisive, we're in a decisive moment. And, and that's why I think you need to respond in a big way. Yeah. I mean, and also the other word that comes up a lot in the book is inequality. I mean, it feels to me as though, uh, again, sort of uh, how can we make a more equal, a fairer society? That seems that comes through really strongly. It's such a simple question, but it's it's a complex answer. It is a complex answer, although I think there are lots of answers out there. I think one thing that really strikes me about the podcast and about the book is and what inspired me to write the book is that think of any problem and there's a solution out there somewhere in the world you know housing if you look at vienna and what it is doing building social housing i mean it feels like as close as no-brainer to me as you can get you know uh issues around uh care look at what the scandinavians done universal child care um parental leave and making sure that mums and dads have proper time with their uh, kids you know look at what the Nordics are doing in terms of uh, uh, father's leave, maternity leave, all of those things. Um, you know, exciting ideas like universal basic income and so on. Who knew, or many people won't know that Alaska has as close as you get to a universal basic income through what's called the permanent fund uh, dividend. Um, you know, the, the, the whole way in which the Green New Deal can help create decent jobs for people at good wages. So. I actually think the, the way that businesses, actually progressive businesses is another way the debate has changed. Progressive businesses are arguing for a different model of capitalism. Lots of businesses I uh, speak to. So, you know, I think there are real solutions out there. Um, and I think, I, you know, I'm on a partly on a mission to persuade people through the book that 
it's not hopeless. You know, yeah. things can be better. Things can change. And if I can say that, having lost the general election in 2015, then, you know, there must be something to it, I suppose, is partly what I'm saying. Yeah, well, the, the, the line I took from the intro about the greatest challenge is not devising the solutions, but finding the political will to make them happen. And, it, and it, that was a, you know, that's a hard won observation in the sense that you can come up with big ideas, but if you can't, you know, pull everyone behind you in, a, in, a, in the democratic process or whatever, it's not. Yeah, but, but I hit, tell you what I think is really interesting about this is people sometimes confuse winning at the first attempt, winning an idea at the first attempt to it can ever happen. And I think, you know, I talked there about the NHS was first conceived in a minority report on the poor law by the Webbs, I think in 1909. Okay, it took 39 years to uh, for it to actually happen. And I'm not sort of recommending that we take 40 years to make changes happen, but, you know, Good ideas, if you fight for them, they tend not to die, they tend to hang around. Yeah. And 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 there is this sort of uh you know, there is something quite magical sometimes about political debate, which is things can seem impossible. You know, I just think go back to this thing about uh Ruth First and Joe Slover. You know, when my parents knew them in the 80s, um the notion that apartheid was about to end was just for the birds, I mean, it just didn't yeah. seem at all conceivable. Um, yeah. When you th- when we think about our lifetime and our generation and LGBT rights, the notion that we'd have had same-sex marriage, equal marriage, just yeah. seemed, would have seemed ridiculous. You know, and just yeah. beyond the bounds of possibility that it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and think of those, but and so you know, uh, think of those gains that there be. Yeah, and and those changes that there've been, and it's almost like the the change seems impossible until it happens. Yeah, um, uh, and that isn't meant to be sort of rose tinted spectacles. Everything's fine. There's lots of scary things about the world. God knows. Um, but you know, I think part of the DNA of being in politics, you've got to have a sense of optimism. My dad actually was a very optimistic. Uh, was a very optimistic person. I mean, it wasn't sort of Marxist determinism, but he was. You know, history, he used to say, actually, history is on our side. Right. And what did he mean by that in terms of... I don't know, actually. Uh, well, no, I think probably what he meant was, I think probably what he meant, it's funny, I had never, I hadn't thought about it for years, that phrase. Um, I think probably what he meant, you know, there's this, this phrase by, uh, I think it's Frederick Douglass, which is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think really what he's sort of saying is, look at the course of human history, and actually, you know, things get better. I think he was sort of saying things do get, things do, things do get better. No, he used to say his. I mean, it's interesting. I must think this through. History is on our side. I think, yeah, I think what he meant was that sort of, you know, that that over time, you know, trade union rights, the NHS, other things, a struggle produces positive change. Yeah, I yes. sort of feel I overall, if you put the effort in. <laughs> yeah, overall, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of when you think of Trump and you know some of the stuff we see in our world, it's terrible. But yeah, I suppose. I, I, I mean, the other thing about the book is, you know, how can one feel hopeless when you see 
fast food workers in America who went out and campaigned for a $15 minimum wage and now won it for 22 million people or the divestment movement. There are just lots of good people all around the world and around the UK who are just doing trying to do good things. I think it requires engagement and and there's been a there's been a lot of disengagement, people feeling disempowered as though their voice didn't matter. And um, that may well be partly where we got to, to in Brexit, really. But um, yeah, well, I think that's a really good. By the way, I think you're really right about that. I mean, my constituency voted 70 plus percent for Brexit. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the sense of you know does the country work for us you know i always say this that the the, the th thing my constituents say most of all about brexit is you know we wanted we wanted a new beginning we wanted something different yeah and they put and i do make the point that uh, margaret thatcher had offered them the right to buy their own homes at the same time as decimating their community by closing the mines and not that everybody wanted to be in the mines but they re recognized sure. that they'd lost something exactly um, you, there is a whole chapter or a whole section about social contract. What do you think the, the social contract has to be, if you like, going going forward? That, that everybody has a stake in our society, and that we're we more that, that we are a more equal society. Fundamentally, mm. you know, if you have a society where so many people feel they've got nothing, that you know. That they're, you know, if they've got a job, it's an incredibly low wage job. If they don't have a job, they can hardly afford to live. You know, that is not the society we want. Everybody's got to be able to have a stake, but it's not just about everyone having a stake. I think the gap, for me, the gap really matters. Um, the gap between rich and poor, um, you know, whether we live parallel lives, uh, whether, the, you know, even, even a basic concept like having greater equality of opportunity. I mean, that just isn't possible if you have gaping, a gaping sort of chasm uh, between the top and the bottom uh, mm. in society. So, so I think it's about, and, and I think all of the evidence from around the world is societies that are more equal, are healthier, happier, more secure, um, more, more socially mobile, all of those things. So I, th I think it's though, for me, it's about those two things. Um, it is about inclusion, if you like, and everybody having a, uh, a stake, but it mm. isn't just about that. Uh, mm. And I thought I, I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking, uh, sort of wrestling with that social contract issue. And, and that is what I think is broken down. And by the way, when I say equality, I also mean intergenerationally, because I think the biggest one of the biggest challenges we face is what young people face in terms of the, the legacy we are in danger of leaving them. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to, say, the climate crisis. You know, this is one of the arguments, by the way. There's going to be an argument, I think, unfolding in British politics about whether we should go back to austerity or whether we should be investing for the future. Because I think mm. that's sort of where the government's going to end up, is going through a, some kind of version of austerity. And, you know, I often think about this investment question. If we don't invest in tackling the climate crisis, you said sometimes people say, well, you shouldn't, you know, if you invest now, you're going to have to pay it back later. And that's the sort of debt for future generations. The biggest debt we could leave for future generations is a climate disaster. I mean, mm. I genuinely sort of feel this. Mm. Uh, and so, that is, I mean, so, it's a financial debt as well, isn't it? I mean, there's destruction. We can see it happening. Well, well, <laughs> yeah, good, really good point. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, you just look at the tragic events in Germany and elsewhere yeah. and think of the costs of adaptation. 
uh, that we're going to face. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, sorry, that's a really good point. It's a financial debt as well as a. Uh, well, sort of only in in the, the sense that it's been it's been put that argument has been put put like that, hasn't it? You know, and actually now people are have, are actually living it. You know, they're living fires in California and, exactly. and so on. It, it's all it's actually happening now. Um, I was going to ask as, as well, though, that just going back to the time when you was leader of a Majesty's opposition, is there anything you actually missed from those five years? Like, what would be the one thing you might miss? Well, that's a good question. That is a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think... I think there is a real privilege of being leader of the opposition. A friend of mine used to say when you came to the Labour Party conference speech, very few people get to speak to the country about where it is and where it might go. So I think the, the pulpit, you know, the, 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 the sort of the chance to speak to the country and shape, shape the national debate that you get as leader of the opposition. Hmm. Uh, I think that's, I think that is a, and obviously, you know, you try to win the election, but in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the the sort of chance to, to speak to the country, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think I miss, I miss and that. The, and conversely, what was the thing you least missed? The thing you most liked about it? Well, I say I think two things. I think one is the. The sort of intrusion, the intrusion on your sort of family life. I think I don't mean intrusion as in people outside your house, although that was really uh, pretty horrendous. But but I mean the the sort of sense that you're never able to really turn off. I mean I think my wife and kids might say that's still the case with me. But but you know uh, I think I think that uh, I don't miss PMQs one iota. Right. Uh, because that was just a grind. People think doing PMQs once is is difficult, and it is. Yeah. But doing it once is 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 not the issue. Doing it doing it 140 times or whatever I did it. I mean, it was just an absolute sort of. I mean, oh, just every. It, it's also like painting the fourth road bridge. You know, the minute you get to the end, you have to go back to the beginning. You know. Like by the time you got to Wednesday, I mean, few it's over. But then Thursday, Friday, you have to start sort of thinking about it again. I mean, it was sort yeah. of, and I don't think it ever does any good for anybody. I mean, it holds the premise to account, which is important. But uh, you know, I don't think it ever wins a leader of the opposition the election PMQ. No, and it, it's it's there's a lot of focus on it, but there's also um, it's often said that that adversarial sort of bear pit nature is exactly Ugh. what a lot of people loathe about politics. Terrible. Awful. And it's yeah. very hard to, by the way, it's very hard to do it differently. I went through these phases of thinking, let me try and do it differently. And I remember Dennis, you know, I had some discussion with Dennis, Dennis about this at one point, because he was saying to me, look, you don't need to be the person that sort of screams and shouts and so on. He was rather approving of me trying to do it in a different way, but which is quite, quite surprising. But it's very hard to do it in a different way without your side thinking, oh, for goodness sake, you know. Yeah. We're here for the sort of, we're here to sort of cheer on our side, not to sort of have a kind of, you know, yeah. nice debate. I don't see it changing, unfortunately. Me neither. 
Unido. How is it being back and back in in? I like, I, like, I like it. I mean, it's much less stressful than being leader. Um, that's the sort of overwhelming feeling I have. Um, I you like get, it. Have I, you given Keir any tips? I mean, you not, know, not really, because I think it's sort of, I think the thing I feel most, you know, you ask about the job, the thing I felt most, feel most retrospectively thinking about the job is everybody's always got some view about what you should be doing and really you've just got to do your own thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's and you just get up. <laughs> you just get <coughs> excuse me you get so much advice. Um, I care a lot about the climate issue, and I also care about the business economy issues and shaping reshaping the economy of the future. So I think it's a really a sort of really interesting area uh, to be to be working in. Uh, I mean, it's obviously been very very much day it still is day to day because of the pandemic it's been it's been quite hard to think beyond the immediate crisis exactly uh, and that yeah. may start that may i said may start to change um yeah look, I, I i'm pleased i came back i'm definitely i'm definitely pleased i came back uh it is you know, your family pleased sort of you know a bit pleased I think I think yes I think I think what what I think in all honesty I think what they'd say is you know uh that I work too hard uh and that you know I have te- I think I think partly that is a parental thing actually is that comes from uh, parent, your parents yeah yeah I think I think that I think that the they were they worked pretty hard particularly my dad and I think it's sort of uh Finding finding ways to sort of not work is 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 is, is you fun. know one of the I'm a, I'm a, I've become a big pond swimmer actually. Oh, have you? Yeah, like lots of people have because it, I've done so many stories over the years about everything from it helping a, an old climbing injury to yeah. arthritis and a mental. I'm health. a total believer. I'm a total. I'm a, I'm a. I was there this morning actually. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think they're, uh, I think one, they're one of the great sort of assets. You know what, I'll tell you a story about this, which is, I'd never, I'd never been to the ponds. And then I read the New York Times, and the New York Times had this thing about the best 10 swimming spots in the world. Yeah. And one of them was Hampstead Ponds. Yeah. Or, um, or Highgate Ponds, right, I don't know what you call them. And, and uh, I said to Justine, this is ridiculous. You know, we live near the best, one well, of the ten best swimming spots in the world, and we yeah. and I've never been. And yeah. and then I and then it's really the pandemic during the pandemic that I really took it up. Uh, and I did it. The I did the sort of through this winter, such as it was, because the ponds were closed for a bit last winter. And I'm I'm, a, I'm definitely a convert. I ran to Alistair Campbell at the Lido. I ran into him occasionally, and I honestly I had this experience on Monday morning. I ran into him at the Lido. And because the ponds were closed, you know, because of the uh, there was this sewage, some sewage problem caused by right. the flooding. And as I got, as I arrived at the Lido, basically there were lots of people from the ponds at the Lido. It was like ten to seven this last Monday morning. All I, all else says to me is pond life. We're having to queue because of you lot. I thought, oh, thank you very much. It's good morning to you too. He was very. We actually, we're actually talking about Lido's on the podcast to the, uh, uh, today. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? We've, people have been really appreciative of the stuff on their doorstep, uh, uh, you know, over the, over the pandemic. Um, massively, yeah. What else, is there anything else that you enjoy doing when you're not doing politics? Uh, I'm a big baseball fan. Oh, I watch baseball. Okay. I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan. Um, and Leeds United, yeah. I understand. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a bit of a lapsed football yeah. fan. My kids are bigger football fans than, than me, actually. Um, I like spending time with them, but but I look, I don't. I think it's that Justin and I watched the various box box sets. Unforgotten. Do you know Unforgotten? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant. Uh, Nicola Walker is brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. So, but I I don't. I don't find relaxing and not working very easy, in truth. Uh, you know, we, we were talking earlier about how your parents, or your, your dad was very good at um, bringing you into the discussions, yeah. the political discussions. Are your kids interested in political discussion? And are you yeah. good at yeah. listening to their, their opinions? Yeah, they are interested. Um, uh, I don't think they'll become politicians, which I'm probably quite pleased about. Um, uh, but but yeah, they 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 care about the world a lot, um, uh, and I think the climate thing is really interesting because I think it is literally second nature to them. Yeah, um, it just in a way it wouldn't have been to me when I was growing up. Now yeah. I mean that's both that's a good and bad, and it's bad in the sense that it's because of where we're at. Well, to be fair, our, our, our young lives were overshadowed by more by atomic, the threat yeah. of atomic warfare. That, yeah. was, that was my big, huge fear. Whereas the Armageddon that there's overshadowing them is, is, is this one. Really, that's a really good way of putting it. Very yeah. real, you know, very real. But, you know, the thing that you're scared of is different, isn't it? Yeah, um, no, that, 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 is, that, that is definitely true. Uh, that is definitely true. So... So yeah, they know they are. They're, they're definitely uh, yeah. They're, they're they're definitely quite quite engaged in the world, and I think that's a, I think that's a sort of good thing. But I think it's it's about bring them up so that they can be engaged in the world, and you know, but not feel an over overwhelming too much of an overwhelming sense of responsibility for it. Like you, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> So oh, if I wanted to ask, this is good, this is a tough question to slightly end on, but um, if the pandemic has made lots of people rethink their lives and rethink their priorities, you know, people have moved houses, shifted jobs, whatever. Do you have sort of a you, you have a sort of a prediction really in the book that, that that partly the pandemic is going to help to drive the desire for for change? It's it's made it so stark, hasn't it? Um, what, what do you think the, the fallout, if you like, uh, if you can project a couple of years, will be in terms of, uh, you know, politics and, and what the, the British people are, will be asking for or will need? I, I, I think it's very uncertain and I think it's to be shaped, actually. You know, yeah. I think I've sort of learned something over the last few months, which is that, or, or, or sort of maybe my view has slightly evolved, you know, I think it's very in the balance as to whether, look, everybody wants to go back to normal. And I think that's totally understandable. And that's true for myself. You want to be able to see friends and family and go about your life in a normal way. 
And the, the, but the, so, so that isn't the issue. The issue is, do we learn the lessons of what we what the pandemic showed about the pay of key workers, about our public services, about who had power at work, who didn't, about the way we live, the way we work, and all that as a society, or do we um, just sort of, if you like, leave it all behind and then sort of just carry on? Now, I don't think the nature of the pandemic, I fear, is going to be such that we just leave it all behind. But, mm. but, but I think it's. I think it's to be fought for and won as to whether we learn we learn the right lessons, actually. Um, and in a way, that's the role of politics is to make sense of our part of the role, is to make sense of our collective experience and say, what do we learn from this about mm. our society? And I think it's the gap between who we are and the self-help groups, mutual aid, the way we've looked after each other, the gap between who we are and the way many of our institutions are run. And we've got to bring, we've got to close that gap um, mm. by having our institutions reflect the best of us. Um, so I think that's, and I think that's the question. Um, mm. And that, that's the vision to be fought for. And after 1945, I think 1945 was very, it's just obvious, but it was very different. You know, uh, a war is different. And, and you know, th th there was just a much clearer demand, I think, then for something you know, for, for reform. Um, but I think it's to be shaped. I think the debate is to be shaped. Yeah. But I also think people have become very aware of what, um, well, how, how strongly they're affected by political decisions, because it literally has told us to stay in our houses or, and political decisions have affected our freedoms. Um, and I think we've all become aware of what good and bad governance is. Well, that's well, yeah. I'm, look, I'm sure that is true. Quite aware. Uh, so there might be a, a. I'm hoping for a cry for better leadership. You know, I, I sort of basically say in the book that I think it's not politic politicians who generally make change. It's people. It's social movements. It's 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 movements of people. But politics can play a big role in. It yeah. goes back to what I sort of said earlier about the role of political leaders, which is to try and shape. I, I think making sense of our collective experience, what we've been through, and yeah. what does the future look like, I think is the big, is the big, is the big task now ahead. And hopefully, in some small way, the book is a contribution to that. Thank you so much to Ed for spending time with us. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe, and we'll be back soon.